we see two elements that come together. And if you will find these two elements together in this chapter and look for them throughout the scripture, you will find out that they appear everywhere together. The first element is the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And the next element is in verse 3, God's words. God speaks. When God created this world, he created a world that was all very good. This is how the world was simply because it was an extension of God and his own goodness. A good God could not create an evil world. God created the world and it reflected his goodness. But the scripture tells us here in these first three verses several things about how God created this world that are instructive for us to note. First of all, he created this world, and in that moment, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in verse 3, God speaks, calling forth the light, and suddenly the light begins to shine on that first day. How did that happen? That the light came into existence. The Spirit of God, according to verse 2, is superintending, he's hovering, he's brooding over the creation of this world like a mother hen with her wings outstretched, nurturing into existence what God's Word calls forth. Let there be light, and the Spirit of God brings that to pass. Before God speaks, there is nothing. God speaks. The Spirit broods, and suddenly life springs up. The Spirit of God is nurturing this universe into existence in response to the Word of God. In chapter 2, verse 7, God creates the man. And notice how the creation of the man proceeds. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. From the dust, God fashions a lifeless lump of clay. And then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the clay stands erect. It stands up. It begins to walk about. This was the creation of man created to rule over this world. And this man is animated, he is empowered, he walks around with the life and breath of God in him. The word breath here in chapter 2 verse 7 is a very special word. It's actually the same word that we saw in chapter 1 verse 2. It is the word for the Spirit. The Spirit nurtures this world into being and the Spirit is the one who causes that lifeless lump of clay to stand up he is the life-giving Spirit. And in this world, life reigned in that initial world. There are no tombs because there is no death. This is a world of life. And then, as we saw this morning in our scripture reading, man sins. And death strides boldly into this world no longer is life the reigning Lord in this world. Now man who has been created to rule the world becomes a slave himself to death. 
and death reigns. The universe that the Spirit nurtured into life, that He brought into order, that universe now begins to degenerate under God's curse. It begins to fall apart. The flame of God's own life that once pulsated through this world and animated the man is now quenched. And man begins to die. The spirit of life has withdrawn. And that's the condition in which the world exists for several thousand years. At times, the spirit of God would re-enter this world. He would empower a man to perform supernatural things, such as when the scripture says the spirit of the Lord was upon Samson, and he tore the gates from the, of the city from their foundations and carried them miles away. Or when David, the king of Israel, reigns for 40 years over Jerusalem in a nearly undefeatable military championship. But the Spirit of God is largely absent from the Old Testament. And all the while, man is dying. <clears throat> Mankind was poor and without good, no good news. Men were broken-hearted captives, enslaved under death's reign. It was not the time of God's good favor in the Old Testament. The spirit of life had withdrawn. But towards the end of Israel's existence as a nation, just as she was being torn apart by the Babylonians, the prophets of Israel foretold a coming period of time when Messiah would come. He would have the spirit of God upon him. He would bring good news to the poor. He would bind up the brokenhearted. He would proclaim liberty to the captives. He would open the prison to those who were bound. And he would announce the time when God would once again show favor upon this world. How would Messiah bring these benefits to mankind? By what means would he reverse the effects of sin? How would he bring life again to this dead world? What breath would Messiah breathe into this world of death? And the answer is, he would bring the Spirit of God. Once again, God would breathe into this world the breath of life. And once again, man would live. Time and time again, the prophets foretold that this coming period, when the Messiah comes, would be a golden age, when Israel would live again. It would be the age, the prophets said, the age of the Spirit. And thus it's no surprise to us when we open the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel and we find the Spirit at nearly every turn in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at John, Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, we'll start in verse 15. This is the promise that John the Baptist would be born. He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The forerunner who would announce the Messiah is predicted to be one who would be filled with the Spirit. Look at verse 35. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. How will this child be born of Mary, a virgin? Answer, 
the Spirit of God will go to work, bringing life in the womb of Mary, apart from the presence of a man. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth herself was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, the mother of the forerunner, is filled with the Spirit. So far, everybody we've met so far in Luke's Gospel is filled with the Spirit. This is a dramatic reversal of what we saw in the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verse 67. The father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies, saying, and you can read his prophecy from verses 68 to 79. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Spirit of the Holy Spirit was upon him. He is the one, Simeon, who receives Jesus as he's brought into the temple and offers up praise to the Lord, saying, My eyes have seen your salvation. The Spirit of God is once again brooding over this world. He has returned at every point in Luke 1 and 2. He is brooding over, this time, a new creation. He's nurturing into existence the body of Jesus of Nazareth in the womb of Mary where no life ought to exist, for she is a virgin. He's creating life where no life previously existed. And through his intruding into this world, all of God's promises concerning the new creation are beginning to be fulfilled. This is the beginning point. This is when the Spirit of God enters into this dead world once again. And it is by Him that all of the promises will be ultimately fulfilled. It will be the Spirit who creates a world wherein dwells righteousness. And it seems that it's all beginning in a humble village in Galilee. God is beginning His work to give life again to this dead world. The Spirit is here now, first in Galilee and the promises made to Elizabeth and Mary. Then in the hill country of Judea, as Mary flees to spend time with her sister, the Spirit of God is here brooding over the events of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth as they unfold. He's breathing life into the darkness once again. God has spoken His word, just as at the creation week, you will bear a son. And the Spirit of God goes to work to make the word of God come to pass so that Jesus of Nazareth lives and the Spirit comes upon Mary, a virgin. and Life springs up in response to God's words to her. God is creating a new human being here in the womb of Mary. It's the beginning of a new human race. For this is the second Adam. God is here commencing the creation of a new world. This is the first creative act of God in His work to roll back that curse and to bring into existence a new world and a new humanity to inherit that new world. The body, the creation of the body of Jesus of Nazareth will never die. It will spring to life again even after the cross and it will live on into the new creation. This body that the Spirit of God creates is the first bit of matter that will inhabit that new world. 
Here the Spirit is creating the seed of a new world. God speaks, the Spirit goes to work, and life springs up in the darkness of Mary's womb. But the promise of the prophets was not simply that the Spirit would enter into this world, but that God would pour Him out upon all flesh. The promise was that God would put His Spirit within you. Not just upon Jesus of Nazareth, but within you. When will God pour out His Spirit upon mankind? When will the Spirit of God breathe new life into the nostrils of all flesh? Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We don't have to read far in the New Testament before we come to a really firm answer of when the Spirit will come. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. A messenger coming to prepare the way for the Lord to make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's preaching in the wilderness. His message is, repent, because the Lord is coming. He's preparing the way for the arrival of the Lord of heaven. And the only way to prepare is to repent. John is preaching in the wilderness. And he's preaching there for a reason. He's not downtown Jerusalem. He's out in the wilderness to make a point. And the point is this. Preparing for the coming of the Lord means going out. It means leaving Jerusalem behind. Quite literally, separating yourself from everything that goes on in that city and coming out to him in the wilderness. It means leaving sinful Israel behind, trekking out in the wilderness. For what? To be baptized and confess your sins. Preparing the way for the Lord means repenting and being baptized. This is John's message. The urgency of his preaching is that Yahweh himself is about to arrive. And every Jew was awaiting that day when the Lord himself would come to deliver Israel, to bring new life, to give the Spirit. And John is saying, he's on his way. He's about here. This would be a day when the Spirit would be poured out upon Israel, the prophets had foretold. It would mean the arrival of a new world. The Spirit would come upon all who repent. John tells them, 
I can baptize you with water, but I cannot give you the Spirit. The one who is coming after me does that. I'm merely preparing the way for the coming of the Lord who will give you the Spirit. And John gives us several things here in verses 7 and 8. The first thing that he tells us is what the Lord will do when he comes. Verse 8, he will baptize you. The word baptize was a common Greek word. It's what you did with dirty dishes after a meal. You dipped them in the water and scrubbed them up. It's used of immersing things in water to clean them. And John's actually been doing that, right? He's been dipping people into the water and bringing them up clean, prepared for the coming of the Lord. The Spirit, John says, will come upon every one of you who repents. And the urgency, I'm sorry, I lost my place there. John has been performing this act by those who have come out of Jerusalem. He's been baptizing them in the Jordan. And John says that when the Lord comes, he will do the same thing. He will baptize. So who is the baptizer then? Who performs the act of baptism? The Lord. When he comes, he will baptize you. And what does he baptize people in? John says, I have baptized you in or with water. He will baptize you in or with the Spirit. John baptizes in water. The Lord who's coming will baptize in the Spirit. So think of a cup. Dip that cup in water and pull it out. What's true of the cup now? It is full of the water. So too with the Lord's work. He will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. He will put His Spirit within them so that they are full of Him. It is the Lord who is coming who will bring the Spirit. And so here we have John predicting that one is coming who will baptize people in the Spirit so that now He's theirs. They possess Him. It will be by the work of the Lord who comes that, the, that God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. And this is the promise of the arrival of the Spirit. And He will come when the Lord comes. But whoever immerses people in the Spirit and gives the Spirit to them has got to have the Spirit Himself first. And that is why the next verse of Mark 1 says what it does. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately after John's prediction that the Lord would come and pour out His Spirit upon all flesh, Jesus appears on the riverbank. He's come from Galilee. He's come to be baptized Himself. According to verse 8, baptism is how one receives the Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus has come to be baptized. And what is the effect? The Spirit comes upon him so that he possesses 
the Spirit of God. Notice verse 10. I'm sorry, we just did that Jesus himself receives the Spirit. And why does it all play out this way? Just listen to John chapter 1. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. When the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus of Nazareth, it is God's own signal that He is the one who will give you the Spirit. So let's go to Luke 4 now. And I want you to notice what the effect of the Spirit coming upon Jesus of Nazareth is. Jesus is baptized in chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. And then his full genealogy is given to us through the end of the third chapter. And so immediately, chapter 4, verse 1 is what occurs after he's baptized. Baptized? What's the effect? Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Is he not now? He has received him. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, does what? He returns from the Jordan. That's where he was baptized. He returns from the Jordan and he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. Immediately after his baptism, the Spirit shows us why he's come. And that is so that he is now full of the Spirit and the Spirit has come to lead Jesus. He leads him first into the wilderness to be tempted. Look at chapter 4 verse 14. Temptation being ended, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him goes out throughout all the surrounding country. Jesus has undergone deep temptation. And as a human being, he must have been exhausted and hungry after not eating for 40 days. And in Matthew's Gospel, we read that the angels came and ministered to him, but not here in Luke. In Luke, he returns to... How does that weak human being get out of the desert and back to Nazareth? Answer, the Spirit of God empowers him to return to Galilee. The Spirit has come not simply to lead him, but also to empower him. And look at verse 18. He returns to Nazareth. Verse 18, he goes into the synagogue. He stands up to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Because he has anointed me. Why was he anointed by the Spirit? To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To recover the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's what he does for the rest of his life on earth. He goes about preaching and healing. The Spirit of God has come upon him to empower him for ministry all the way through. The Messiah, the word Messiah simply means one anointed. He's been anointed by the Spirit of God. And do we understand then that that's the way that we must understand Jesus of Nazareth? Why could he do what he did? Healing the blind, raising the dead. 
Why could he go on teaching and preaching nearly endlessly of the kingdom of God? What empowers him to do that? Well, he's God, right? God never has to sleep, but Jesus of Nazareth did. This is a human being upon whom the Spirit of God has come. And it is the Spirit who presses him forward throughout his life to proclaim, to heal, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, preaching by the Spirit, bringing the recovery of sight to the blind by the Spirit, life to the dead, proclaiming the dawn of a new age, an age, a year, when God will once again show favor to mankind. Jesus Christ lived every day of his life in the power of God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit animated this man from Galilee, every step of his earthly journey all the way to the cross. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and through him, the Spirit was breathing new life into this dead world, literally raising the dead, literally rolling back the curse as the blind are healed. And the year of God's favor is once again proclaimed in this world. Three years pass. Jesus has exorcised demons. He has healed the sick. He has unstopped the ears of the deaf. He has raised the, dab, the dead. Give him just a few more years of this and he will totally eradicate the curse from the whole earth. He will bring in a new world. It seems the new creation is just about to dawn. This will be all that the prophets have foretold. It will be, it will come from this one upon whom is the Spirit of the Lord. But one day Jesus' disciples are startled by his announcement. He's going to Jerusalem. The religious leaders will deliver him to the, to the Gentiles who will crucify this one on whom rests the spirit of life. He will be betrayed by one of them. Judas receives the morsel of bread. He goes out and Jesus turns to the 11 disciples in an upper room and he gives them this commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples. Peter detects in that statement that Jesus is leaving. And to this point, the fact that they have actually walked along the roads of Palestine with him, that's what has told the world, these men are disciples of that rabbi. But if he leaves, how will they follow him? How will they show that they are his disciples? And Jesus says, now it will be by your love for one another as I have loved you. Now their love will tell who their rabbi is. But in this, Peter understands that Jesus must be leaving and Peter begs to go with him. But Jesus says plainly, I am leaving. And it's at this point that Jesus makes an astounding promise to them. Let's look at it in John chapter 14. We'll pretty much be in John 14 through 20 until we finish this morning. John chapter 14. Love as I have loved 
you. John chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with or among you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Jesus of Nazareth, a man whose career through Galilee and Judea proceeded in the power of the Spirit, says he's going to ask the Father to give them the same Spirit. So that as he has loved them in the power of the Spirit, they too will love one another and so prove that they are disciples of this Spirit-anointed man from Galilee. He will be in them. He will not leave them as orphans. Jesus says, I will come to you. I thought it was the Spirit. I will come to you. That's how closely Jesus and His Holy Spirit are connected. And from this promise, we see several things. First of all, it's clear that when Jesus leaves, the Spirit will take His place. Second, it becomes clear just how this process of Jesus leaving and the Spirit coming will occur. Jesus says, I will ask the Father to give you the Spirit. He will not utter that prayer in the lonely deserts of Judea. Instead, the process by which he will ask the Father for the Spirit for his followers is remarkable. Look with me just two chapters over in John 16. John 16 verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. He's going to ask the Father for the Spirit. I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me where you're going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, but I'm leaving. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It will be Jesus' departure to the Father that will let him ask the Father for the Spirit to give him to us. In this way... His departing to the Father will be to our advantage because we will receive the Spirit. He will pour Him out upon Him, upon us. And yet the path to ascending to the Father lies through the excruciating obedience to the point of death. Death on a cross. And yet it will be through that experience of death and rising again that Jesus himself will return to them by the Spirit. 
He will ascend through the clouds to the Father, where He will be crowned Lord of heaven and earth. He will ask the Father for the Spirit, and like a gardener quenching the thirst of a young sapling, by tipping out water from His watering jar upon it, Jesus will stand upon the portals of heaven, and He will pour out the Spirit upon all flesh. The events of Jesus' death transpire. Jesus lies in the grave for three days and three nights, and then... Early on the first day of the week, the Spirit of God enters into that cold, lifeless tomb in Jerusalem. The eyelids of that corpse begin to flutter. A breath rushes into his lungs. Brain waves begin to pulsate once again. Jesus swings his legs over the side of that ledge where his body had been laying. He shakes off his grave clothes. He is alive by the power of God's Holy Spirit. He strides triumphant out of that tomb. He's on a mission, and his destination is the Father's right hand. Now look with me at John chapter 20 as we conclude here this morning. Hours have passed since the women discovered that the grave was empty that morning. The 11 disciples are huddled together with the doors locked. The atmosphere in the room is fear And suddenly, Jesus appears in their midst. He pronounces peace upon them, and he commissions them. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Just looking for the verse. I'm sorry, I did not jot the verse down for you. Verse 21. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's instructive for us to listen to two things here that Jesus says to his disciples while he is with them on the earth. Sorry, I lost my place there. At this point, notice verse 22. When he had said this, He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. What's happening? It's instructive for us to listen to two things that Jesus has already said to his disciples. Just listen to them briefly. In John 7, verse 39, Jesus says, Those who believe will receive the Spirit, but the Spirit has not yet been given because Jesus has not yet been glorified. So what comes first, being glorified or them receiving the Spirit? Jesus' glorification comes first, and then he asks the Father to give the Spirit. Listen to John chapter 16, verse 7. I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. So they cannot receive the Spirit until he goes away. But he hasn't gone away yet. He's still with them. So how can he say, receive the Spirit? The answer to this is that the way that Jesus is working everything in this situation, he's shaping it all to make a point. And here's the point he's trying to make. 
Jesus wants to connect several things in their minds. He wants to show them with a picture what is about to occur when he returns to the Father. Let's see if we can understand what's happening here. He breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. Jesus appears in their midst. He tells them he's sending them as the Father has sent him. Jesus speaks frequently in John's Gospel about the fact that the Father has sent him. How did the Father send him? Jesus tells us that the Father lives, the Father has life, and he sent Jesus into this world with his very life in him. Jesus has come down from the Father with God's own life in him. Whoever feeds then upon the Son will have God's own life in him. The Son is sent to bring new life, God's own life, into this dead world. He's come to bring God's own life. How will this happen? How will he do this? We get a clue concerning what Jesus is getting at when we look at John chapter 20, verse 22 again. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Spirit. That word breathe is the same word we already noticed in Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God forms the man and breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man becomes a living soul. In Genesis, it's God's own life that he breathes into the man. And the man stands up and walks forward with God's own life in him. Adam lives and breathes with the life of God pulsating through his body. Of course, Adam sins, he dies. The undying life of God that was in his nostrils disappears. Now what is man? Isaiah says, stop regarding man, for his breath is in his nostrils, and it will soon vanish. Man now lays fast bound in sin and nature's night, but the Father, who has life in himself, sends into this world his son so that we might have life. How will we have life? Jesus of Nazareth, who has lived in the presence, Jesus who, the father who has life in himself, sends into this world Jesus who lives because of the father. He replaces the first Adam. In Jesus pulsates the life of God. He is the man in whom is the breath of God, the Spirit of God that powers him through his earthly life. He brings the life of heaven into this sad and sin-cursed world. But he's leaving. How will God's life live on in this world? And the answer comes in John chapter 20. He breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. By the act of breathing, Jesus duplicates God's own breathing in the garden thousands of years ago. 
Jesus has not yet ascended to the Father, and so he does not yet have the Spirit to pour out upon them, and yet he enacts this picture of what it will be like when he does pour out the Spirit, so that in their own minds they will make the connection. In giving them the Spirit, he is giving them his own life, the life of the Father that will live on now in them, just as it has lived in Jesus of Nazareth. And now they will love as he himself loves. In giving them his Spirit, his very life, the life of heaven, will continue to pulsate in them. And when the Spirit comes, he will rush upon this band of beleaguered followers of this Galilean peasant, and he will energize them. They will stand erect by his power. They will live, and this life, the life of the Spirit, is the first installment of the new life of the age to come. It is the dawn of that future age the prophets foretold. It is the coming of the Spirit. Heaven's own life will once again pulsate through God's creation. And so when Jesus pours out the Spirit, it will be God at work to make all things new. It will be God through His Son, Jesus, breathing new life into this world of death. And all to whom He gives the Spirit will have this life in themselves. And so the disciples wait. They wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Ten days after Christ's ascension, as they gather together in one place, the sound of a great rushing wind descends from the heavens. They are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. He will be in you. This then is the arrival of the Spirit. And just at that moment, the glorification of the ascended Son was complete. And he received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. And on that day, ten days after his ascension, he poured him out upon his followers. And the results were electric. The formerly despondent and fearful disciples stand up and proclaim Jesus of Nazareth to all the nations of the earth. You go read Acts 2. They're all there. From all the nations of the earth, they've gathered in Jerusalem. And Peter preaches. And the Spirit of God falls upon 3,000 of them. And they are baptized to show that this is the group that has the Spirit of God upon them. This is astounding because present in Jerusalem that day were Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven, Acts 2 verse 5. They've all gathered for this Jewish festival. They're Jews from every nation on earth, and Jesus of Nazareth is proclaimed. The Spirit descends, and suddenly there springs to life a new Israel, a new group of Jews on whom is the Spirit of God, giving them life. It's a new body. It's a new creation. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of all God's promises of the Old Testament to regather Israel. God is bringing Israel to life again by the Spirit. But the Old Testament promises were much greater than just that Israel should be restored. Because God had promised, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And the Jews and the Gentiles will have him. God had promised the blessing to Abraham and to his descendants, the Jews, so that they would carry him to all the families of the earth. 
What about the Gentiles? It's only months later that Peter's in Joppa and he receives a vision. A sheet descends from heaven filled with all sorts of unclean animals. And three times Peter refuses to rise and kill and eat. And three times the voice from heaven makes it clear that what Peter thought to be unclean, God had now cleansed. A hand knocks on the door downstairs. It's the messengers from a God-fearing Gentile. An angel has appeared to him. Send for Peter. He will tell you what you need to hear, the angel says. Peter goes with the messengers. He preaches the gospel. And just as at Pentecost, while he's proclaiming Christ, the Spirit falls, this time upon a Gentile. And Peter declares, can anyone withhold baptism from this one on whom the Spirit of God has fallen? God had promised to bless Abraham and his descendants so that they would carry that blessing to all of the families of the earth. Abraham's son, Jesus of Nazareth, has come. He has lived and died and ascended to glory, and now he is pouring out his Spirit upon all flesh. Abraham's blessing has come to all the families of the earth. We now possess the Spirit of life who reverses the curse of death of Eden. The heavenly reign of Jesus of Nazareth will continue until he has poured out his spirit upon all the families of the earth. What is the effect of the coming of the Spirit of God upon this world? How should men who have received the Spirit live? What does our life look like today as possessors of God's Holy Spirit? And that's what the New Testament epistles are all given to working out for us. The New Testament epistles tell us what it means to live in the Spirit. And that's why we'll turn our attention over the next few weeks. But I want to close by considering one verse in Romans 8. If you would, turn to Romans 8. I'm sorry, not one verse, three. I'll read three verses in Romans 8. start in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Israel without the Spirit. Those in the flesh cannot please God. That's what we looked at in Deuteronomy. God promises to reverse that by sending the Spirit. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, remember that passage in John? I'll give you the Helper and I will come to you. If you have the Spirit of God, Christ is in you. He has come to you. And what will be the effect? If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and your body is dying because of sin, right? Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. He is the Spirit of life. If the Spirit of Him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Life by the Spirit. That's what Eden was all about. That's what sin destroyed. And that's what Jesus has come to restore, to pour out upon us the Spirit, upon all the nations.
of the earth. Lord God, our chief response to these things has got to be a heart of praise and gratitude to you for giving your Son the promised Holy Spirit, for sending him to work out the righteousness that we need so that we might have life because of his righteousness. I pray that as we look in the coming weeks at the epistles, that show us what it means to have the Spirit, what it means to live in the Spirit, what it means to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, what it means to possess the Spirit as members of the body of Christ. I ask, Lord God, that you would open up our eyes to the glory of our salvation. We have within us the Spirit of life. And as surely as he raised Jesus from the dead, our hope is that we too will see the grave no more. We will stand in glory with the Son of God as sons of God, possessors of your Holy Spirit. Grant us this week fruitful times of prayer in praise to you for granting us the Spirit of God. And we ask these things. In Christ's name, amen.